When we began the Green Sundays, I, uh, in my sermon, I talked about the, the rationale for the lectionary, the three-year lectionary, and what each of the years will emphasize, both in terms of the gospel and in terms of the other readings that we hear and who we will hear from. And I didn't say, which this Sunday affords me the opportunity to say, why in the world is this reading in the Sunday lectionary? And I'm speaking about the reading from the prophet Hosea. Hosea is one of the minor prophets, and so it's not because he's unimportant, but because he has a short book. And there are three prophets uh, in the Old Testament that are major prophets because they have very large books. So I want to preach on the, the, the reading about from Hosea and also to uh, say something about a m more important reading, which is the gospel, where we hear about, we hear Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer and see if we can make some uh, sense out of Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, and I'll be able to say some things generally about the Lord's Prayer, which is, which is important since we pray it all the time. So, we begin with Hosea, and the reading begins. Pat Welsh had to read, Go take for yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. The reader at nine said it in a much softer, though it kind of went over whoredom like that, you know. <laughs> How in the world is this in the reading, and what would it possibly mean? And is there any, as the former bishop of this diocese used to say, any homiletical hay? that might be harvested from this reading. <laughs> so I'll try. Hosea was a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel in about 750 BCE, and it was a period of great turmoil. The Assyrian army was on the border and about ready to come in. There had been a great number of wars from other groups on the outside, and things were very tense, and I would guess the whole of the uh, society was chronically anxious uh, about all of this. And so Hosea is a prophet who is going to explain why he thinks that's so. And why he thinks that's so is that the people of Israel have sat lightly on the covenantal relationship established between them and God. And that because of their carelessness and because of their lack of desire to hold up their end of the covenant, they are now putting themselves in great jeopardy, both personally and corporately as a people. So he is using the circumstances of his own personal life, his difficult marriage, as a means of explaining what has happened. So first he explains that he was asked to go, uh, 
what does it say here? Take yourself a wife of whoredom. His wife's name is Gomer. So here's the thing. In the Hebrew Bible, uh, the word, this word is uncertain. It would say in a footnote, meaning uncertain. So the Revised English Bible translates this as unfaithful woman or unchaste woman. And it would lead us to believe that before he married her, she may have been a prostitute in the high places, people who were worshipping the Baals, the gods of Baal, B-A-A-L. So he marries her. And he has now children. And he is going to say that this is a sign, personally, of the issue of unfaithfulness. And I'm going to extrapolate it into a global issue about the people of Israel as they confront uh, the circumstances of their anxiety. So I remember in seminary, Father Hunt used to say, Well, how would you like this? You'd come down the street, and here's Hosea. He's walking with a couple of his kids, and he'd say, Hi, I'd like you to meet Lo-Ruhamah. Have no pity. I'd like you to meet Lo-Ami. Not my people. So what is somebody who beats him going to say? What, are you a prophet or what? But what he's talking about here is that the way in which this needs to be addressed is through faithfulness. And somehow he's drawn a connection between his difficult marriage and his desire to persist in it and the people of Israel who are in a relationship with the God Yahweh and the difficulty that they find in persisting in it, but the necessity And that if we begin to understand this, we will draw out of what he says at the beginning a fairly pessimistic picture. He is going to say that in the end what's going to happen is that God will remain faithful. And all the people who are deserving of pity or all those who God should call not my people will be called his people. And so you need to be aware of the fact that the God that we pray to and the God that we're faithful to is always faithful to us. And will not cut and run. So it's a story. I I did get thinking, it's not quite related to this, but in the marriage liturgy, in the Book of Common Prayer, there's a petition in the book of, in the wedding, uh, solemnization of matrimony, in the prayers of the people, that's especially for weddings. And one of the petitions is, grant that all married persons who have witnessed these vows may find their lives strengthened and their loyalties confirmed, which means the willingness to persist and to labor for things to work in that sense. And so we're going to see the importance of persistence in the reading from Luke's Gospel, which has his version of the Lord's Prayer and some general things about uh, prayer as we think about this. So I want to say some things first about the Lord's Prayer. 
because uh, this is an important thing. There are all kinds of Lord's prayers out there. All kinds of English Lord's prayers. And I harp on this probably to some of your distraction, but I need to say this again. It's important to me to say this and important for all of us to understand, not because we all have to do what I'm just going to talk about, but to at least know it. And that is this. The Bible was written for us. The Bible was not written to us. It was written to somebody else, to other people, other cultures, and in a different language than our own. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. It was written to a different culture, in a different age, with a different understanding of the world. The Christian scriptures, the New Testament, was written in Greek, in a different culture, and in a different era than our own. And so the Lord's Prayer, as it has come to us, came to us in Greek, not English. And so we need to be aware of that because of this fact. So this gives me an opportunity to say this. We use at St. Luke's Church the traditional Lord's Prayer. That is to say the Lord's Prayer that was in previous Book of Common Prayers in the United States. Just as a difference, some people, by the way, worry about all this, so this is why I'm explaining. Uh, the 1662 prayer book in England, still the official liturgy, says, Our Father, which art in heaven. And the traditional Lord's Prayer in our prayer book says, Our Father, who art in heaven. Does it make a difference? Probably not. And so when we read this, we use the traditional version of the Lord's Prayer uh, because it has been hallowed by usage. And most people are used to it. And in the wider culture, in the era in which we find ourselves, if the Lord's Prayer is ever recited or used at all, it is normally the traditional version of the Lord's Prayer. So if you go to an AA meeting, or you go to a 12-step group, and they say the Lord's Prayer at the end, that's the one they're going to say. So it's a better, more user-friendly thing to do when people come to church to use that prayer. But in the present prayer book, there's another Lord's Prayer. It's a contemporary version. And it is, in fact, a more faithful rendering from the Greek text than, a, than the traditional Lord's Prayer. I don't, we don't use that here because of the reasons I have just spoken to you about. But when we start to read the Lord's Prayer in, in a gospel... We need to know something about that. It also, uh, the Lord's Prayer that's in Greek is the one, by and large, that's taken from Matthew's Gospel, which is the one that is the longest. So it tells us some things about that. But here's another thing. There is no punctuation in the Greek Bible. There is no punctuation in the Greek Bible. 
So English versions punctuate their Lord's Prayer the way they punctuate them. And German Lord's Prayers punctuate them. Italian, French Lord's Prayer. They punctuate them the way they punctuate them. Not because they got it from the Greek text. In the Book of Common Prayer, the collect that Father Emerson sang to begin the Mass is full of semicolons and commas. It's punctuated so that the presider, should she or he choose, can sing it. And the punctuation affords the opportunity for the singer to be able to sing it and put the flexes in the collect where they should go in sing in song. So when we read these things, we have to understand that punctuation is important. Now, some nitpicker will say, well, isn't altogether true that the uh, Greek text doesn't have punctuation in it? Well, it's sort of true because they don't have punctuation marks. What they'll do, this is not exactly true either, but what they'll do is you'll go read, 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 and then you'll run into a word that's spelled C-O-M-M-A. Right? So you're supposed to read that word as pause. But what about a semicolon? Well, I don't know. It's come, camerino. You know, never mind. No punctuation. Because people didn't know how to read. And it was written and read by people who did know how to read. And it became... It became put in there so that you and I, when we learned how to read, could read it or sing it. So Luke now has his version of the Lord's Prayer, and it's shorter than the one in Matthew. And by the way, since he's, we're, we're translating from the Greek text, he uses uh, the, 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 this, like what it sounds in the traditional, or rather in the contemporary Lord's Prayer. He's speaking about this. So as we enter into the interpretation of the lines in Luke, which are fewer than in Matthew, we also need to know something that is the point of this passage from Luke. By the way, I'm not going to preach on the rest of it, which are instructions about a petitionary prayer and really does relate to Hosea. Persistence in prayer. And the necessity that all of us have to persist in prayer in ways that are useful and also accessible for us. I always am amused to read that one about the man who's in bed with his children. And at midnight, a guy comes and knocks on the door and said, I've just had a visitor. I'd like to borrow three loaves of bread because I don't have uh, anything to give him to eat. And the guy yells through the door and says, I can't help you. I'm in bed with my children. If I was in bed with my children, I couldn't wait to get out. <laughs> That's my own problem, but I have to say that. So he said, even though he's not going to get out of bed... Because he's his friend, he's going to get out of bed because of his persistence. 
In the Revised Standard Version, the translation was far more Jewish. He's not going to get out of, out of bed because he's his friend. He's going to get out of bed because of his importunity. Be that as it may. Let's think about the Lord's Prayer. This is shorter. If you're a biblical scholar, you, you might say maybe Luke was in possession of a more primitive tradition than Matthew and that's why it's, it's shorter than Matthew's version, which is longer, or that Matthew had mat- other material. There is no reason to assume that Jesus taught this prayer in one go. Like, oh, now here's his speech about when you pray, say this. One of the problems of contemporary biblical scholarship over the last hundred years has often been, well, it's different in Luke than in Matthew, so they both can't be true, so we're going to have to spend a lot of time writing PhD dissertations to determine which one may be the truer one. Have you ever said the same thing more than once in a different way? It may be that reason and common sense would lead us to believe that it's possible that Jesus continuously taught his disciples to pray. And one of the things that we need to know is that he stands in the Jewish tradition, which is that spiritual teachers, mashals, teachers of wisdom, which Jesus was, taught people to say things in set prayer, in prayer that they memorize. Most people believe that uh, prayer is more authentic. I, I looked this up. Prayer is a learned experience. Jesus would teach that to people in so many words. Not simply the release of the heart's mutual longings. You know, we live in a world that's been true in, in Christianity even since the Reformation. That there are people who believe that unless prayer is uh, extemporaneous, it cannot be authentic because it doesn't reflect the presence of the Spirit. I can remember years ago, they don't say that too much anymore, but when Episcopalians were at ecumenical gatherings, some clergy person from another denomination would say, well, the Episcopalians, you know, they can't pray unless they have a book. For the last 10 years of my ministry, whenever I have to open meetings at the diocese or ever open prayer, I always read a prayer from the prayer book. Always. I've sat there while people are sitting there. You know, Lord, we're here before you. That's what we're doing. Sometimes for two minutes while somebody is attempting to squeeze one out that they think is extempore. All right? When I was in seminary, my teacher, Urban Holmes, used to pray every, at every class before we began. Direct us, O Lord, in all our doings with your most gracious favor and further us with your continual help that all our works begun, continued, and ended in you, we may glorify your holy name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Or he would pray, O oh God, without you we are not able to please you. 
Grant that the Holy Spirit may always govern everything. I can't remember it, but I forgot the prayer now. Direct us in all our doings with your most gracious favor and further us with your continual help. So those prayers, when you memorize them, can't hurt and they might help. And certainly that's true for the Lord's Prayer. So Luke, Father, hallowed be your name. A testimony of the intimacy between Jesus and God and Jesus' consciousness of this relationship, the intensity of his relationship to God, such that he can address him with great intimacy without feeling uh, arrogant or rude. And furthermore, uh, inviting all faithful Christian people to enter into that intimate relationship with God and to say that it is possible for all of us to do that and in fact necessary. Your kingdom come. It's the prayer for the coming of God's future work. But in all of this prayer, there is always the prayer that has to do with what is now and what is to come. So we're always living in the tension of the kingdom is present with Jesus in his earthly ministry. The kingdom is present in the life of the church and in the future. And what we learn from the Savior's teaching is that all of us are needed in the bringing to fulfillment the kingdom of God. All of us are necessary in big and small ways to do that. Give us each day our daily bread. This means tomorrow's bread. It means being fed both physically and spiritually. And somebody who would have heard him say this live on the ground would have understood he's also speaking about, since we believe he is, the messianic banquet which is going to come. When the Messiah comes, and the Messiah has given us a species of the messianic banquet in the holy sacrament of the altar. And so it is also possible for, to us, for us to think about it in those terms. Forgive us our sins as a perpetual process of God's work in us and at the final judgment. For we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us. And what this means is God is asked to forgive sins, not debts. But in terms of our forgiving others, it is for their debts to us. So how that was made manifest on the ground in the ancient Near East was a concept that we don't have absolute evidence was kept with great regularity, but it's something called the Jubilee. And the Jubilee was about every eight years when there was universal forgiveness in Israel. Property that was mortgaged was returned to the former owner. Debts were forgiven. People's fields were returned to them. And there was, once again, as uh, Bishop Romero, the interim bishop here, said, Quanta y boron. We clean the slate. We're beginning now from zero. And we move forward. So, it has a lot to do, I suspect, also with Luke's view of things. Because in his gospel, there is more mention, more parables, more stories 
about issues of social justice and equity than in any other gospel. He is very concerned about how we use our possessions. And here's what the reason is, in my view. Luke was a Gentile Christian. He was a physician. He was in a community of Christians in about 80 to 85 A.D. of Gentiles and also a fairly significant number of fairly well-heeled Gentiles in Greek cities. And it was beginning to become clear within their communities, within their churches, uh, that we needed to be concerned about the use of our possessions because all kinds of people were there and they had various levels of prosperity. And so he was concerned that we begin to think in terms of generosity and think in terms of being stewards of what it is we have and to being generous, as I mentioned before. So I suspect this prayer uh, he, he found resonated with his own experience in his community. Do not bring us to the time of trial is a prayer that, not God, that God would not, would not stop tempting us to sin because God doesn't do that. But rather for our preservation during times of great tribulation anticipated in the trials of faith during the Christian life. Save us from that possibility. Not only personal temptation, but corporate temptation about not being put to the test with regard to how we act and how we behave. So the Lord's Prayer is a prayer that we can pray frequently, and it's one that we're called to pray frequently, the one that we use all the time. Its value is that it's something that we know and something that we can do. You know, when Pam gets called or I get called by somebody who says, would you, would you please pray for my Aunt Dorothea who's going to have a PET scan tomorrow? When I first hear that, I mention her name and I say the Lord's Prayer. And if I'm here in the church sometime during the day, I come from my office into the church and I light a candle for Dorothea and I say the Lord's Prayer. When I first came to St. Luke, someone came to see me and said, uh, yesterday I was standing on the corner of Main Street and University Avenue waiting to cross to the Los Gatos Coffee Roasting Company. And the light turned walk. And as I stepped off the curb, I had this enormous impulse to say the Lord's Prayer to myself. Do you think I'm becoming a religious fanatic? <laughs> and I said, no, what, you're, what the impulse is, is something that is part of the religious life or the spiritual life in Christianity from the beginning. And the term for it is habitual recollection. while you're doing something else. So in one sense, you know, persistence in prayer 
does not mean that you have to go through a big hoop to do. So this week, take persistence in prayer seriously. Uh, Use the Lord's Prayer. After all, it's the one the Savior taught us to pray. Amen.